In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, 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 hello. Ryan Roxy here and welcome to another live stream episode of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Uh, today is one of those days. I'm telling you, I woke up extra early. Um, I've been excited. There's been a buzz around our studio, if you like, would like to call our studio uh, my son's room, and obviously in our producer's room, him and Stanley, the dog, are all excited about today's guest. But uh, first of all, welcome to the podcast, and if this is your first time joining us, make sure you hit that subscribe button right there on the YouTube and Facebook Live buttons, especially the YouTube channel. Just put that subscribe button right there so you can uh, get all your notifications from now on. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or any other word I can't really pronounce right at this moment, well, then uh, you pull your car over and get on your phone and get onto the uh, live stream chat that we have going on the YouTube live channel because the chat room is alive today. I can tell about that. They've been excited. They've been excited all week because our guest today is honestly a great representation of being in the trenches and having this career that's I said before the show when I was talking to her saying guerrilla style marketing but doing it your own way but basically just going up 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 would you please welcome to in the trenches Orianthi hello hey Ryan how you doing nice to see you so where are you at in the world? Where where are you at right now? Undisclosed location, of course, but where are you at? Yes, it's a mysterious location. I'm in California, LA. In California, and you're but not I'm on here. fire. Yeah. You're you're you're. I'm not on fire. I feel really bad for all those people. I mean, twenty thousand lightning strikes or something. I was like, that's how it happened. I'm like, how do you avoid that? Well, like, I don't know. You know, I I, I, I thought for sure the Bible said it was twenty five thousand. So we still, I guess, have five thousand. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I was going to introduce you introduce you as uh, the pride of Adelaide, Orianthi. But then you know, I knew that you, you are kind of like a Los Angeles resident for many years now. But I do want to take. Um, our audience on a little journey today because I know that there's a lot of Orianthi fans in, in the chat and listening right now, but for those of you that um, might not know the whole story, because I didn't before I did this interview and did the research for it, um, we're going to go through a little bit of that story and journey, which leads us up to today, because first and foremost, Orianthi, today we are going to talk about your new album that's coming out this year 2020 or maybe 2021 what is it it's coming out this year in november i don't know the exact date but i know it's november okay That's what the label so, great yeah and we are going to later on in the show folks this is what they call a teaser we are going to give you some exclusive sort of uh even though she's released it on her, on her page already before we're going to give you the exclusive all right this is for blabbermouth and for brave words and all the other great publications out there it's for rolling stone we're going to give you guys the artwork of the album we're going to show it to you so you can check it out yourself but first as you know when we do uh, in the trenches we have to uh, go back to get forward and so when i say that i have a little bit of a history with our artist and Obviously, we have a history together. We are both Alice Cooper alumni. Yes, exactly. We, <laughs> Lived on a bus for how many years? Like three years or something like that? <laughs> Ori, we've done buses, and now 
there's two separate buses. So the band isn't as, even though the band rocks on stage and we are very close together, always on and off stage, when we're on the buses, there's only five people on the bus that I'm on now. And there's only mm-hmm. five people on the uh, on the other bus. So on our bus, it's just Alice and Cheryl and myself, Chuck, Garrick, and um, uh, Kyler. So that's it. So, so we, but, but when we two were together, we were the band, the entire band, all ten people on the bus. We're all yeah, you know, and that was it was fun though. I gotta say. And then some mornings it was just it was hilarious. So I'd wake up pretty early, and there would be like a python out on the couch or something as I'm pouring my coffee, and then it's like that's just Julia Squeezer, you know, hanging out, and I'm like it's just staring me down. I'm going, um, Kyler, can you wake up? Because <laughs> you know. I didn't want to chunk, take it out of my hand or my arm or something because it's like it, it was eyeing me. And, and as much as I love animals, the snake thing took me a minute to sort of uh, yes. come comfortable with it. When she talks about, when Orianthi talks about Julius Squeezer, she's of course talking about the uh, boa constrictor that we would have on. Do you remember any of the other names that we had for the snakes? There was there was Julius Squeezer and who else? Little boa, little boa Pete, I believe that was one of them. Little boa Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Who comes up with these names? I love it. I don't know. I just know that that was one of the. I think that was the, that was the the yellow one, the kind of Britney Spears looking one. The Britney Spears yeah. looking one, yes. <laughs> and it was funny because I was so afraid of snakes. I'm like, well, if Britney can do it, I'm going to put this thing around my neck. Then it's like a crowd of shit. I was like, you know, I didn't want to be a pansy or anything. You guys were like totally cool with it, and I'm like freaking no. out. Personally. I never liked snakes. I never really did. So I'm I'm still a little bit freaked out. And now he hasn't toured with the snake for a couple of years now. So, um, but let's let's treat this conversation today, Ori, like it is one of those mornings on the bus or late nights on the bus because we did used to have a lot of sort of these conversations within the tour bus where you would be preparing some sort of it would usually be an egg and chicken. It would be it'd be some burnt chicken and an egg. Are you still on the burnt chicken and egg diet? You know, I'm actually pescatarian now. Um, I was vegan for a while. I went completely off chicken. I think I just ate too much of it. You know, you just have too much of something. You just now I, I don't have any. And plus, you know, I watched this documentary that came on Netflix, and now I just cannot eat meat anymore. It's this weird. It, and if anyone you know is is considering to to be a vegan or whatever, I'd say watch it. I can't remember what it was called, but. No more burnt chicken for me. No, no, no. And is I know it, that was really awful for you guys. Actually, I'm really sorry about the kind of smell of this like burnt <laughs> chicken and eggs and broccoli, and, egg. and you're like, oh, this is wonderful. Coming <laughs> to the bus. <laughs> Honestly, though, it did actually inspire me to go keto years later, and it did work. But so you're completely pescatarian. There's another soundbite. I guess we can take. Hey, brave words, uh, uh, blabbermouth. You're total pescatarian right now, Orianthe. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk about Adelaide. I want to talk about you because a lot of times when you do, you start doing research for an interview, the immediate choice is going to Wiki. And I just can't believe everything Wiki actually writes and says, but it says that you were playing piano at three years old. Three. Yeah. Yeah. I have a photo actually of sitting on my grandpa's lap. I think Vic has that photo. Vic, do you want to put that photo up of that? No. No, a lot of times I ask our producer to put impossible stuff and he never, you know, well, usually he does it, but maybe not this time. So you have a picture of yourself playing piano at three years old. 
I think I have a picture of myself sleeping at three years old. That was basically all I was good at. But but from that from that age, three to six, you actually did start playing guitar at six, and your father was a big uh, instrumental part of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My dad is a guitar player. He's left-handed, so I actually learned how to play left-handed first. So, what? and then he was, yeah, I actually because he didn't have any right-handed guitars around the house, but I thought it was so cool because he listened to Hendrix. I mean, my dad, I'm half Greek, right? So he right. he would play Greek christenings, weddings, all that kind of stuff. And um, but then he would listen on the flip side to Hendrix, Cream, you know, Grateful Dead, all that kind of stuff. So I he had an amazing record collection in the living room and put on vinyls and then VHS of like Freddie King, so you know Santana, all that kind of stuff. Especially, I mean, Abraxas was a record that really, you know, changed my life. And watching him play, I wanted to, it looked so cool. The guitar just looked so cool. And in order to sort of bone my dad and hang out with him, um, I was like, I'm going to pick up one of those guitars. And I, I learned left-handed. And he said to me, you know what, you should probably learn right-handed. You have a better choice in, in guitars when you go to a store because it's usually <laughs> like two, two crappy, you know, guitars in the corner. Or they're the left-handed ones over there. Right, know, right. So, um, but yeah, so he's so I initially learned how to play chords left handed, and then um, the advice he could never give himself, he passed on to his daughter. And then, he did. He, but but <laughs> was it was it? Do you remember it being a hard switch from going to left handed to guitar? Because the only thing I've ever switched at that is when I played baseball, and I used to I started off hitting right handed, and then uh, a baseball coach uh, convinced me to play left handed because I am left handed. Are you are you naturally left handed? I actually am. I can write with my left hand and my hand. So do, I can write with what do you gestures. normally? What do you normally write the checks with? What's the one? Thing? <laughs> uh, my right hand, uh, because you know it's it's funny. I try to write with my left hand a lot because it's supposed to open up the right side of your brain or something. It, yeah. There's some kind of. I was reading about it, and it's actually good for your for your brain cells or something. I don't even know. So I kind of do it here and there, and paint because I love painting. Not well, but I love painting, and I usually try to paint with my left hand too. You're so. pretty ambidextrous. Well, just let's just say that you're ambidextrous, and you've had um, a ton of amazing role models that you're you've been able to learn from over the years and you mentioned one right off the bat carlos uh santana but like i said growing up even before that well there's a shot of you and carlos right there jamming i'm, I'm going to get to that story in just a little bit but even before that at age 14 uh and i think it's age 14 steve Vai, who's obviously one of your you know growing up heroes he invites, oh, yeah. he invites you to play on stage or be the opening band for his show or how did that work and who was the band or was it backing tracks? It was, it was actually my first support. Um, I signed a management deal when I was 14, right? And that was my first support ever was opening for Steve Vai in a nightclub called Heaven Nightclub in Adelaide. And um, it was really daunting because, I mean, I used to read a lot of guitar magazines and whatnot and, and Steve I had this article it was like this metaphysical article in in the uh, magazines he was like dressed in like you know alien love secrets he was covered in silver paint and then he's like shredding like no tomorrow you know they always put like a CD on the front cover of, the, of those uh, you know magazines back then so I would hear some of this stuff and I'm like wow like this is crazy it's so good and um, so I was really scared not only being my first support but opening for 
preconceived vibe, you know what I mean? And then I'm a 14 year old girl, it's predominantly men in the audience with their arms folded going, what the hell is she going to do? So I'm like going out there with a backing tape too, which I made myself in my studio. And um, I was, let's just say that was probably the most nerve wracking experience. And Steve was watching, um, you know, side of stage and, and, yeah, I, I played for, I guess, 30 or 40 minutes, something like that. And, and it was definitely a, a crazy experience. I got through it, thank God. Um, and and that fob actually, it turned off. So I could hear it was a side wedges. Um, so I heard the click to come in. I mean, the whole experience, it was so weird, but I got through And I guess he, Steve saw that and he just saw that I was like probably just really driven and well, you were going for it, right? You were going yeah. for it. At 14 years old, you're going for the performance because that's the one thing that I know about you from playing with you for the years that we played together in Alice Cooper Band is that you did go for it. Once once it was stage, you know, once you hit the stage, it's go time. Yes, irritable zombie time. <laughs> well, we talked about the zombie. We'll talk about the zombie makeup in a little bit. But I do want to kind of keep it in chronological order, but um, so... The relationship that you uh, forged with Steve Vai pretty much is it helps you and catapults you to this later in life when you're doing your own uh, your second solo record. He's actually playing on it. You're writing together for that, right? Yeah, that was wild. I mean, Steve stayed in contact with me. I was 14 years old, and I would send him demos, and he would. He would write back, he would email me back and tell me how I could improve on them and he would critique them or say, oh, this is great, I really like this or, or you could, you know, do something better. And that was the most amazing thing that he took the time. Like, to me, like, that was just like, wow, like, this guy who's incredible, he became like an, an uncle to me. He still is, I've known him since I was, I was like 14 now and I'm, I'm 35, so it's been a long time and, and we're just great friends. His family are awesome. And um, getting to jam with him, which I have a lot, and then getting to write a song with him for Believe. My that was friend. highly strong, yeah. Highly strong, highly strong, yeah. And, and I went over to his place and I actually texted him. I'm like, hey, Steve, I'd love to write a song with you. Are you down to do an instrumental? And I didn't know what he was going to say. And he's like, absolutely, come around, you know, next weekend or whatever. So I went over to his place and um, he had this sort of like riff idea for Highly Strong. We have a name for it. And I was like, it's cool, it's Highly Strong. Like, it would be so cool. And then back and forth sort of thing. And, we recorded the guitars you actually hear on the recording are the demo guitars because we wanted to keep that vibe because we went to record it again, but it just didn't have the vibe when we recorded it separately. Then, yeah. you know, being in the room and it's all about vibes. So. How many times does that happen when you record something your, yourself and you're like, you're really happy with it in your home studio, then you try to recreate it in like sort of a real studio, but it's like, you know what? I want to go back and get that. You know, that's why I say there are no such things as demos anymore. Because, like, for my album, when Tommy uh, pro- produced a couple of the songs off my like my last solo album, he basically we recorded those tracks in those on those days off that we would have on the Alice Cooper tour in some sort of hotel room. But we ended up yeah. using ninety percent of those tracks because it's usually those demo tracks that are really have the uh, the energy and the vibe like you're talking about. It's all about the vibe and, you know, I can't stress that enough because, you know, with music, it's going to make you feel something and if it doesn't, then, you know, what's the point? And that, that was the thing with the guitars. It's like it was back and forth, like having a conversation and then playing together. It just felt right to be 
right in the room and and we did recut everything and probably spent a small small fortune with the label um <laughs> recutting it all you know and and then i heard it back and i'm like no i don't like this at all and then and i sent to stephanie's like let's just use the, the demo stuff but um it's all about vibe it really is it doesn't matter as you said like you can cut it in a hotel room you can cut it in a you know ten thousand dollar a day freaking studio and and if you've got a better vocal take in the hotel room and, and, and the conviction's there, and, you know, I mean, that's what it's all emotion, about. Yeah, you're right. Emotion, yeah, absolutely. Well, so if not, if one mentor like Steve Vai wasn't enough, you, like, are still in Australia. You haven't made that move over to uh, the States yet. Then another mentor comes around that is a huge influence on you, not just on you musically, but then eventually gets you, you playing the guitar that you still play to this day, which are PRS guitars. But I'm talking about Carlos Santana. And, and, and again, like I don't always believe Wiki, so I want to ask the source when it happens. Is it, is it yeah. like true that at like 18... He asked you to come and sit in with him and just jam at an arena, or how did that whole story work out? Yeah. So what happened was um, when I was 14 years old, I did I did a um, like a demo EP thing called Under the Influence when I was 14, and and it was uh, Under the Influence at 14 though, maybe questionably. but you know it's funny because I, I did it because it was, it was covers. It was like Santana covers and a few. I think I did Hideaway, Freddie King cover, and then I wrote a song called "Song for Carlos," which I dedicated to Carlos and sent it to his office. You know, I got everyone's at fourteen. I got everyone's address. Like I, I literally looked up all the record labels. I looked up everybody and just sent out everything. I said, "My mom, we're doing a press kit," and I was like, even at that age, I was like business minded on how to get all my stuff out there. You know, and I, I just put a list down. So I sent it to Santana Management. I got an email back from Jorge Santana, who unfortunately has just passed, but it was Santana's brother. Right. And he wrote back and said that they'd been listening to the demo um, EP in, in their offices and, and loved it. And I was like freaking out to get that email, you know, that they actually received it, liked it, didn't hate it. And then um, after that, he came to, um, then he sent that to Corey Smith. And I got an email from, from Paul saying that, you know, he'd been playing, you know, the, the EP in his uh, his factory, and, and he loved it, and that was amazing because, you know, I mean, I begged my dad for a PRS guitar when I was, like, 11 years old, and I got a second-hand one that it was just, I never put it down, you know, because Carlos, as soon as he played Europa and I heard that tone, wow, I was like, that. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wanted a PRS so badly, and, and, and you know, thank God. I mean, my dad... He found one as it was like this brown color. It was from the 1986 model, so it was literally a year after they opened the factory, and it was really heavy. It was awesome. I still have it, and um, yeah, you know, I just love playing this. And, and Carlos, it's just like a it's a, a long story, but he when he when I was 18, he came back to Adelaide and invited me um, to meet with him. I kind of bombarded him with like press kits and everything. Well, um, you still have that same work ethic. You still have that drive. You still have that push as when you were 14. So, of course, by 18, you're, you're definitely giving them the press. I was in like three, I was in three cover bands when I was 18 and, and playing, you know, until 3 a.m., uh, you know, most nights with that. Like I had a duo that I used to play, um, you know, different hotels with. And I had another band um, called Drop D. And then I had another band I would join too. And, but I was kind of underage because, you know, I would, 
I would play in those bands when I was like 15 to about 21 or 20 right. when I moved over to the US. But um, so I was up all night till three gigging and then I got a call um, to come meet Carlos at Soundcheck. Got to jam with him. I was nervous. I was so nervous. And then um, and then he's like, well, do you want to join me tonight on stage? I'm like, that would be amazing. Uh, absolutely. He goes, okay, cool. He didn't say what songs he's playing. He didn't say what key they're in. It was just follow me into there and then kind of drop you in the deep end of the ocean and see if you can uh, swim. But I guess, you know, knowing all of his songs was, um, like, I literally. Had yeah, you knew all the it. songs already because what was that live from South America? That was like one of those major influences album. What was it called? Brett? It Sacred Fire. Yeah, Sacred, yeah, Sacred Fire. Fire. And yeah, yeah. And you knew all those songs already, so it was like, yeah, I got this. Nice. I knew all the songs. I actually wore out that VHS. I wore it out from pausing it and trying to learn the lyrics and pausing it. And um, it was funny because when I looked around on stage, it was the same same lineup as that VHS. And so I was just like freaking out. I'm like, living in oh, a VHS. This is a simulation. How am I on this stage? No, I was seriously, it was a freak out moment. And I remember that very clearly um, all the time as like a moment where I'm just so grateful for him. You know what I mean? It's like you, you get those moments, right, where you just remember being on stage with like my freaking idol and, and the incredible band and how it felt. And I'll never forget that. So um, I'm forever grateful for it. You've that. had a few of those moments. You've been lucky to have a lot of, you know, a few of those moments with some iconic characters. I mean, obviously Steve Vai, Amazing shredder, Carlos Santana, uh, iconic guitarist since the 60s. And, and then there's this other guy. I'm trying to pronounce his name. Was Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Does, does that ring a bell? I, don't know. I mean, that, that must have had been one of those moments when you got on stage and jammed with him and that you kind of maybe said, wow, is this really happening? Or That, that was wild. Uh, that was really wild. Um, you know, I was recording, I was already over in, well, I was already here in LA and I was, I think I was recording with Diane Warren. I was writing with her, working with her and, and I got an email through MySpace um, from Music Now you're talking going, MySpace, that, MySpace. The, the, the MySpace that is made famous because it was the one before Facebook, the one that we all had, but then Facebook came around and kind of just crushed it in MySpace. Just, disappeared. It disappeared. I, mean, I always liked MySpace. I mean, I'm telling I really you. Liked, I thought it was cool because you had like a bit of writing, people could write comments, you put a song up, you had like a you know video. It was all in one. You could customize your page too, like with skins. Remember that? You could make it kind yes. of cool. It had all those things. And then Facebook just kind of came in and I, I go, I'll sign up for Facebook, you know, because I might as well. Kind of like the way I, I would sign up for TikTok, but never use it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I kind of did too with Facebook. It kind of looks a little corporate. It looks very like um, kind of a bit boring, you know. In, in, you know, next to MySpace. MySpace, right? yeah. so, MySpace was yeah, the shit. That was happening. It was spot, and now it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> What's that movie? I'm trying to think now. Of course, it's, I, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but they actually talk about MySpace being a thing, and it's like it sounds so campy and old school, but because, it, but it was relevant, folks. Okay, younger people, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, exactly, see, those are the yeah. kind of things our producer does, Vic, where, where I go, wow, how did you get that? But thank you very much, Vic, for doing that. Thank you, everybody, for being in the chat. Um, you know what, Vic, if you want to put some comments up from time to time, because I know you people are, are there in the chat, and you're, but we're having an amazing time here talking with Orianthi. If, uh, if this is your first time checking out in the Trenches podcast, just hit that subscribe button right now. And it seems like there's a, a huge revival for uh, MySpace. So, uh, everybody, we're probably going to get flagged and probably put in that uh, silent, uh, what do they call it? When they, when they block you, they shadow block you. So, from, from our Instagram accounts will all be shadow blocked now because we're getting praise to uh, MySpace. But no, that's not true. We love it. So, you moved over to Los Angeles and moved, made that move right around the same time that um, you already had a solo record out and you are in, but when did the PRS endorsement come and was that actually handed down to you with a, with a good introduction with Paul Reed Smith or did Carlos Santana have something to do with that PRS relationship? Um, well, Carlos definitely did cause he sent my, um, CD to Paul when I was like 14 and then Paul was emailing me to come around to play the NAMM show when I was like 14, 15 and my parents were like, you're not going to America for a bit. So I was like, all right. And so when I was like 19, I think I went over to the NAMM show and went and, and, and took you know, a visit to the PRS booth and met everyone there and I, and I got, they got me demonstrating in the booth and, and just like, you know, jamming out with the band. Cause it was really cool. I mean, NAMM back in like, early like 2000 you know it's different experience you know and then try it, we walk in, try it in the 80s dude I, i'm old school man I, I i went to the nam show in the 80s and the 90s and i and there's so many nam shows i forgot oh i'm sure i forgot a few of them too but um yeah it's kind of you know going there every year but since i was 19 actually um up until last year so i've been going and, and yeah it's crazy because it changes so much you know and being over there uh demonstrating Paul's booth and the first time and, and I remember Sting coming in and, and, and Kev Mo and all these different people coming in. I was going, Oh my God, like this Lionel Richie came past and it was like all these different, you know, acts and, and it was just a wild time and, and Paul supported me and it was just like I actually got my record deal um playing playing a PRS show with, with Santana. A Nam Jam. Um, What's that? A Nam Jam sort of, right? The Nam Jam, yeah, and and uh, one of the A and R's uh, for Interscope Records was in the audience. He worked with um, he worked with Jimmy Iovine and Ron Fair. He happened to be sitting in the audience, and and then approached me afterwards. And and I had a demo CD called Violet Journey, which I made when I was like nineteen in my home studio. And um, so I gave that to him, and then he took it to Ron Fair, and then uh, and then Ron. I guess, um, yeah, he heard it. I, I didn't hear back actually for a while and I was wondering, okay, this is weird. And then it was, I went back home to Adelaide and, and everything. I just didn't hear back anything. And our phone line, it was actually a funny story. So our phone line, um, we had a rabbit. Um, and <laughs> Of course, so, as you did. So the, rabbit, the rabbit chewed the line. So we had no, we didn't realize that the phone wasn't ringing because there was <laughs> the rabbit. A rabbit almost, almost fucked your record deal up. I can't believe yeah, it. Yes, so I didn't hear anything. And, like, we're trying to, and I got an email going, we've been trying to reach you. Like Jimmy wants to sign you, but we can't get through. And I'm going, oh crap. That's the ultimate Bugs Bunny. I mean, I'm telling you. <laughs> 
a rabbit almost ruined your career, but luckily, but maybe it made, maybe it made you more hard to get. Maybe that like, why is she not returning our phone calls? They wouldn't know that a rabbit chewed through the phone line. I love it. Well played, Ori. You do you do that constantly. I'm telling you. And you did produce yourself, Violent Journey, didn't you? I mean, you you recorded it yourself. I recorded, well, my dad um, and I set up the studio in the back hour. We uh, gutted the shed, you know, and, and soundproofed it and made it, you know, this studio with a drum kit and a control room and a, and a Roland 2480. So I learned how to use, I learned how to actually engineer things, how to mic things. So I spent a lot of time at a studio called Fat Tracks in Adelaide with an engineer there. And he would, you know, teach me how to, you know, just use the right mics and the right instruments and all that kind of stuff and how to, you know, record yourself because I really wanted to learn how to do that. And so I sat with a 2480 and a Fostex and I would just literally learn how to record things properly. Like how to, you know what I mean? Like even with acoustic guitar, how to get the best sound out of that, how to get the right preamps, how to get the right, you know, tubes. Proper technique. Microphone. Proper yeah. technique that right in these days is not as important because all the technique is usually in a preset at this point. You know? Absolutely. So, <laughs> so even learning how to mic a drum kit too, like a snare, all that kind of stuff. And so I learned how to do it all. And then I taught myself how to play drums. That took about six months. I just sat with a drum kit. Well, you mastered piano at three years old. So what the fuck? It's just drums gone solo. Come it. on, man. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't, you know, the thing is I, I got by with it. And that was the main thing. I think it was more inspired when you hear the, anyone who hears the record can hear it's inspired playing. You know what I mean? It's not right. like anything it's uh, right home about but it's like it it was fun and i love the drums i'm a frustrated drummer i played bass drums keys wrote all the songs uh did everything and i kind of just wanted to do it all myself and i would go into the studio around 10 p.m at night and 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 finish around 7 or 8 a.m and drink a lot of diet coke i remember it that entire time and i'd just be a zombie i'd come in the next day uh, wake up my dad or my mom and go, I've got a song. I just wrote another song. I just finished it. And they're like, oh, for God's sakes, that you're insane. <laughs> like, you know. But that's good, and, man. And you're young and inspired. But that work ethic <laughs> translated when you moved over to the States. And that's what my point is, is that... A lot of people, including myself, think the story was that, oh, yeah, Michael Jackson just signed on to MySpace and checked out a few of your videos and saw your YouTube videos and said, oh, yeah, I want her, which might have been the case, but you were already very established yourself. You you had the record deal before you even joined up with Michael Jackson. In fact, I think the record label postponed your record release because they you know, your solo album, your, at least your second album, the Believe album, right? They postponed yeah. it because of your, you know, your association already with Michael Jackson. And what I want to get to is that, that first moment that you got on stage with Michael, what was the, what was the thing that really won him over? What was the, what were the tracks? Cause I can still remember my audition with Alice Cooper. It was, you know, cause I don't think you had to audition for Alice Cooper. I think you were just kind of like, yeah, you're in, but I had to do, I had to play 18 billion dollar babies and poison. Those were the three songs, but what were your three songs or maybe you didn't even have to, I'm not sure. No, well, it was crazy. Cause when I got the, um, so, uh, Michael saw me play with, cause I would sign with 19 entertainment. So Simon Fuller was my uh, manager at the time. And then I had, uh, you know, a, a record deal with, with Interscope. And I was in the studio with Diane Warren, who's an incredible, you know, songwriter. And we're, we're demoing up a song. And I remember getting the notification. And I said to Diane, I was in the vocal booth, going, Michael Jackson wants me to 
come in and meet him and she's like what and, and I like she thought I was like crazy I was like, no, I don't know if this is real or because you, know, you used to get a lot of crazies on MySpace, right? A lot of weird yeah. whack messages. So I'm not sure if this is real. So I sent it to my manager and he goes, no, it's legit. And so Michael called me that night, Michael Jackson did. And I was just like, he goes, I saw you on stage with Carrie Underwood at the Grammy Awards and, um, you know, I, you're, you're what I'm looking for. And, and if you'd come in, if you'd learn Beat It, Day Diana and want to be starting something, um, the band at Center Stage um, tomorrow, um, I would love that. And I'm like, uh, okay. And so, I mean, I was a Van Halen fan, but I hadn't really gotten into like his technique. I mean, he's a monster player. So I'm like, going, how the hell am I, I'm more of a blues bass player, you know? I mean, um, so it was definitely a challenge and I was freaking out. I didn't sleep that night whatsoever. And I just tried my, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to go in there and try to fill anyone's shoes because that would just be, I couldn't do it. Hell no. I mean, you know, um, Eddie's incredible and Jennifer Batten's incredible. So I just wanted to go in there, learn the solo, but do my thing, which was kind of make it a little bluesier. So some people are like, right. you didn't play the solo. You didn't play the solo exactly how they played. And I'm like, I didn't want to because, you know, if I tried to do that, I probably wouldn't be able to do it note for note exact and with the way that they, because everyone, you know, it's like, as you know, like being a guitar player, we all have our own voice and the way we play. So I wanted to put a more of a bluesier kind of thing to it and got in there, set a staging. I was nervous. I actually, it was like I forgot how to play guitar. When, of course um, you're nervous, when Michael, man. Come on, man. When Michael, walked, when Michael walked in, they dimmed the lights. And he's like, I want to hear this loud. And I'm like, oh, my God. And he came and sat down on the couch. And then he's, and, and I stood like right in front of him and went to beat it. Then, um, and he was just uh, staring at me and I was like, just freaking out and like, you know, going, okay, hot. and he's like, I want to hear it louder. And like, they turn it pretty up louder. And so, and, and then, then he's like, okay, I really like, that sounds great. And he goes, now, um, I want you to learn that. Um, and you have to be walking around whilst playing that solo because you're not going to be standing still. And I'm like, okay, great. So I literally just for, for a few weeks would just be practicing, you know, everyone was high that night and I was just ecstatic. Much. Wow. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. We were actually crying, I think, when, when Michael was like, you're all hired. We start tomorrow rehearsals and we got the set list down, got everything. I was like, holy crap. I didn't even tell anybody apart from my manager. The label wouldn't even know that I was with Michael um, until uh, Kenny Ortega went to Jimmy uh, went to Jimmy Iovine's office and had a meeting and said, oh, yeah, by the way, we have one of your artists um, who's playing with Michael. And then I got a text from Jimmy and, and Ron going, Oh, that's interesting. So you get twins, you know, Michael Jackson. And I was like, yeah. So, so they uh, they found out afterwards. Um, wow. Well, you know what? The, the thing that I found very interesting about this entire story of you was the year, because a lot of shit happened for you, Ori, in two thousand nine. When you go and you start uh, researching something, because this yeah. is 2009 that you're talking about, and the years, and you like you already have your your second album, I believe, that has the Steve Vai song that was written. That we talked about highly strong. Uh, it ends up becoming a song that's on frigging Guitar Hero. I mean, I know, I know, and 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 it was crazy. It was really crazy to have songs on guitar hero like that was wild i mean i'm terrible at guitar hero i was gonna say did you ever try to play your own your own guitar because i always say that guitar players are the worst guitar hero video players ever oh i'm so bad at it it's depressing and i was just like 
you know, I remember this one radio station, and it was a large radio station. There was this thing where, oh, you can win the competition to play Guitar Hero against me. And I was like, going, oh, crap. Because <laughs> I suck at this thing. So, you know. And so um, this, this little kid came in. He was like nine years old or something. And he totally just annihilated me at my own song. And I'm like, going, I was like, that's awesome, dude. That's great. Uh, you, you know, because, I mean, it's it's fun. I think it's awesome. But I, I just couldn't get around the whole thing. You know, it was, yeah. Well, guitar. <laughs> Yeah, Guitar Hero and MySpace, they will be missed. But they were definitely parts of our of our upbringing, obviously. But it's still the yeah. year 2009. And Vic, get me up on screen. I want to I want to talk. I want to be seen. Come on, Vic. All right. Thank you very much, my friend. Um, I, it's 2009. And I, it's all this stuff is happening. It kind of kicks off with you at this Grammys performance because Carrie Underwood asked you to be her lead guitar player because you're already established. Like I've said that you've, you've worked yourself up to this point. Carrie asked you to be her guitar player. Did she ask you to be in the band and continue or what happened with that? No, she just asked me to appear with her on the Grammys um, as a guest, which was amazing. And oh, that, that, that photo just there, that's actually from the CMA awards. That's um, in, that's a couple of years ago, actually that, that performance, but, we uh, did the Grammys before in 2009, and um, we, we both had the same manager, right, with Simon Fuller, who uh, you know manages all the idols. And I was like the, the first non-idol they've decided to manage. I don't know why, but they it was amazing. Simon's like, I want to manage you, and so Carrie, her manager was next door to my manager, and she was walking through the hallway one day. She's like, Are oh, you playing the Grammys? She came by, and I was in the office. She's like, Do you want to join me for the Grammys? And I'm like, Uh hell yeah are you kidding me like um yeah <laughs> that'd be amazing and she's like okay we're gonna play this song last name and i was like that'd be amazing and i've never i was so nervous then too because I, I was walking past uh paul mccartney bono on the edge walked past me and then in the green room bb king was in the green room with me and i'm like going are you kidding me so like before i step on stage i'm talking to bb king and i'm like just okay i could die tonight and i'll be happy you know like <laughs> And he was the sweetest, and and he was like, "Hey, young lady, what are you doing tonight?" And I'm going, I, "I'm playing some guitar on stage. <laughs> I'm going to try to do my best." And he was so sweet. And and did then, he have Lucille uh, with him? Did he have Did he have his Lucille three three five? He did. He was. He had Lucille, and he was sitting. I remember at this round table, and he was sitting there, eating and just playing his guitar. And I I walked up and I said, "Look, I really do not want to bother you." by any means but you're like a huge influence on me and and i just want you to know that like how much you affected me and uh and he was the sweetest and then after that walking past paul mccartney to get on the stage with like bono on the edge came down and i was like okay this is crazy <laughs> what now and, uh, what next and, yeah and then the curtains were there and it was like and, and it was ready to go and i'm like going oh crap and then carrie's like i said i said to her i'm kind of freaking nervous she goes just do what you want to do and then yeah, there, there it is. Go. There's the picture from that day. Yeah, I love it. Great oh, job, yeah. Vic. That's awesome yeah. that our producer that. Yeah. Vic gets these shots. He gets these I, things. I and... freaking set up. Um, but yes, that was wild, and and just that whole experience was amazing. And Carrie was the sweetest, and she's so talented. And we're you know been friends since then. And she invited me to play a couple years later. Hollywood Bowl with her. Yeah. Yeah, Hollywood Bowl, and then we played um, CMAs a couple of times and some other things. But yeah, she 
She's an amazing artist, truly. So 2009, things are looking pretty good. Then, you know, think, oh, <laughs> pretty good. That's a very a big understatement. But things are looking amazing. But then, you know, sort of shockingly, Michael Jackson passes away quite suddenly. You yeah. guys are filming, yeah. basically, This Is It. And yeah. is it is it one of those things where you just like went home after rehearsal one day and then try, came back in or someone said, hey, don't come into rehearsal today? Or how did this whole thing happen and what happened afterwards? To- um, yeah, that evening was so weird. So we rehearsed until 1 a.m. Michael was super excited. Um, he hugged everybody and said, I cannot wait because we're literally five, six days out from leaving to London, right? We've got our apartments, got everything ready ready to go everything was done um you know and and michael was just so ecstatic i remember that evening and he hugged everybody and see you tomorrow and then went home um i was getting ready to go to stable center at that time because i booked out the stable center for rehearsals like it was like the forum i know right so why not and then we had the forum was booked out prior to that and then it was stable center and so yeah about to head down to the to the Staples. Uh, my sister was actually staying with me at the time and I got a call from, no, I, that's right, on, on Twitter there was like, oh, MJ's been taken to hospital or something. I saw it on my Twitter feed. Right. And I'm like, this is not right. Like, I just saw him. He was completely fine at like, 1 a.m., you know. Why that. did Twitter survive in MySpace and Guitar Hero didn't? That's my only question. But go go, go back to the story. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was like, is this real? What the hell's going on? I, and I didn't believe it. And my manager called and he's like, um, uh, you know, Michael's past. And I'm like, what? Like, are you kidding me? And and he's like, no, 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 I'm serious. I'm like, no, you're joking. And I literally was like in disbelief. And he goes, no, I'm serious. And I'm like, well, I'm getting down to Staples because I don't, like, I know that I didn't believe him, but I was like, something's not right. Like, right. like right. you know what I mean? It's the yeah. shock. For and so I went down there. Everyone was crying. I started crying, like, when you saw everybody. And then he's, you know, and a bunch of people were, Kenny the, the realization of everybody coming. I, I think it's one of those things where everybody remembers, you know, what happened that day. I, I was playing. I was playing as a festival in in Sweden, Peace Love Festival, actually, and I remember we were playing to a lot less people than you were probably rehearsing for at the Staples Center, and. Uh, we got off stage and everyone said, yeah, Michael Jackson's passed. And nobody really believed it. The same sort of thing. It was an unbelievable sort of event. Completely. And I think, you know, it took a while to really sink in because, you know, we're all in disbelief and sadness. And because he became a friend, you know, I mean, he was very sweet to all of us and, and personable too. Like he would come up and spend time with us, you know, individually um, rehearsing and, and, Getting to know such a legend like that and, and his love for music, his love for creating music and putting on what was going to be one of the greatest shows ever. I mean, it was there was a lot of work that was involved in this whole thing that he put everything into. I mean, he was, you know, working with the dancers, working on the production, working on working overtime. You know, when we were sleeping, he was still working. You know, his mind was good. So that's the thing a lot of people, um, I mean, he was on point a lot of the time. I mean, because it was so much on his shoulders too with a comeback tour like that. So I can imagine the pressure that he was, you know, feeling as well. Um, so it was, you know, you I could mean, see it in the movie. You could see it in the movie, how on point and how precise he is about not just the singing, but the dance moves. And he's aware kind of like that Steven Tyler thing. We talk about sometimes where Steven Tyler can be a lead singer, but he can look around and he knows what's going on with every musician well, yeah. at the same time. 
Absolutely. And and every sound as well. I remember um, Michael telling me one day, he goes, you got to change your amp. And I'm like, what? It's like, you got to change your amp. I'm, I, the sound isn't right. And I was like, okay, straight away, change that amp. He goes, I want it to sound more like, um, you know, listen listen to this uh, song and just listen to the guitar tone. So I had to modify everything, got the tone <clears throat> so it was right. And uh, yeah, his ear was just so perfect. You know, he just honed in on every part so it could be perfection and and from the keyboard parts too he'd be like no i want you to change that sound or or with certain vocal harmonies and all that kind of stuff it was just he was so tuned in to everything that was going on every aspect of the show which i thought was just amazing and i learned you know i held a lot from from him and um as i said a really devastating crazy time as soon as he passed i did you know played the funeral sang at the funeral and everything the label decided to put out my first single and I didn't really have any time to kind of mourn that whole experience. I was just sent straight into, you know, promo mode for my album, which was very, I should say, emotionally um, difficult for me. I can imagine. I can imagine. But at the same time, maybe it helped you cope with the loss and sort of the prospect of like, okay, that was going to be my years. Who knows how many years that would have taken, but it it would have at least been one or two years tour at least right oh at least there were more shows being added all the time and they were talking about it being a tour and all these different things like not only the o2 uh but yeah it was it was crazy and but being thrown into it uh with the promo thing and according to you going out and then um going into all the radio stations at 5 a.m waking up and then everyone's asking me to play the beat it solo at 5 a.m you know with a little cute <laughs> No, you go like, into some radio station. If I, hey everybody, welcome to Jack Crazy Jack and the Dog in the Morning. Uh, play that beaded solo, uh, girl guitar player for uh, Michael I, Jackson. I couldn't even pronounce my name at that hour. You know, you know, I was like, you know, it's like, wow. And then I know it was crazy. It was like, but it was every morning. It was like play the beaded solo. Play, uh, there was so many freaking videos of me playing the beaded solo with a damn cue band. And I'm going, come on guys, I, I'm not doing this. Like I, I refuse. I refuse to play the beat at solo nowadays. If anyone asks me, I'm like, no. But, but you did the work, you put it into, because even going back from those early days of, like you said, being in all those different cover bands, you're doing the work of what it takes. And folks, if you've ever been on a radio promo tour, um, it can be brutal, or it can be the funnest thing you've ever done in your entire life because that's what it was when I did it with Gilby Clark because I wasn't the main guy. I was just the sort of guy that sat in the back and got to eat all the good food and just like play rhythm guitar every once in a while. But when you're front and center, it's tough. I got to tell you, it's fun though because I had my tour manager was a lot of fun and my guitar player, um, Brian, we had, a, we had a great time together, you know, because we would hang out and you know, we'd go to the malls afterwards, we'd like walk around the city, especially like when you got done, like, because the mornings, I mean, we were zombies. We were like, mm. we're going to two cities in one day, basically, with this promo thing. So right. wake up Non-stop. 5 a.m. Yeah, go in, go in with your acoustic guitar, play the single, talk about, you know, talking about Michael passing every morning, right? And then playing the beat at solo and then getting to the airport, getting on another plane, going to the next city, doing another radio show. And then that night, possibly playing a show with my band. So but yeah, it was and like- the whole time the song is getting added and added and added, oh, and you know what? All of a sudden, in is this 2009 still? I think, or maybe it's it's it's, it's coming into 2010 at this point. But you have a number one song. You have with, with according to you, you have another one, and, and you're you're touring with bands like 
who John Mayer I saw was one yes. of them that you toured with. Yes, and who else did Adam you tour with? Adam Lambert. Adam. Oh. I did the Glamnation tour and then uh, open for Daughtry and then we did I did open for Kid Rock and Bob Dylan a bunch of things. You know, it was like literally like did Sturgis played big festivals, um, Summer Sonic. We did Sing Fest. We did, you know, there was just I, I think I went to Japan nine times in one year. I think that was the craziest. But what? We okay. yeah, like literally back and forth just doing. Are so you saying much. that you're bigger than Michael Monroe in Japan? Because I because I, we've had Michael on the show here before, and he will come on again, folks. If he's no, but I'm sure you are as on on par with him because that's the type of level that Michael Monroe gets with, uh, you know. Uh, Japan audiences. I, I, we, Alice, as you know, all my years with Alice, we've never gone to Japan that many times. We've gone, I think, two two times in the entire his entire career. So, yeah, I, I mean, I love Japan, and it was, I mean, because Sony were working this is it over there, and Universal working my records, so I had kind of two labels in a way. So it was just this whole thing where there was nonstop work and appearances and. And the festivals over there were so much fun. It really was. I mean, the whole thing, I've got to tell you, it, it was a lot. 2009, 2010, um, 11, that, that was full on. Um, I didn't sleep. I remember one time my tour manager came in and said, if you don't sleep, you're going to die. <laughs> like, okay. And I was like, all right. Out of sure. a movie script. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember him coming in and, uh, and I was like, I was standing on a table I remember in the dressing room because we had played Summer Sonic, got on a plane to China, got on a plane to Singapore, then got on a plane to Kuala Lumpur and played another show back to back. And then in the morning did MTV lessons and then it was crazy. So I was I was actually going delirious. So when you watch the Summer Sonic, some people say, like, you jacked up on, on, on some, you know, like a ton of caffeine or, or it's you know, insomnia, or man. <laughs> lack of sleep and I was actually delirious I actually I, I understand it with like you know truck drivers how they get that thing right and they start seeing things and things were, well that is was, actually <laughs> drugs so hold on <laughs> well, I wasn't, that is actually um, yeah they're on uppers but I didn't take the uppers um, I was just on a lot of coffee um, B12 shots and you know I wasn't drinking at all then um, but yeah it was just I was so sleep deprived I got up on the table and I'm like guys I'm about to collapse. I'm, I'm like announcing that to the band. So um, I told that, That's I when you're on the table. They, you're, you're I was on the standing on the table when I said I want a bedazzled coffin. Okay, guys? <laughs> so I told them. Bedazzled <laughs> coffin. <laughs> well, you always say certain things like that, Ori. That you take two words and you put them together, and they sort of make sense in your world, which I I, I understand and I respect. But they, they sound really nice because you did say you wanted. What was it for a long time in the Alice Band? You wanted a certain bird. What was a type of bird on your shoulder? You wanted a. Did you? It wasn't a, a vulture. Uh, it was some sort of bird you wanted. I, I wanted. I wanted. And then, and then you wanted to actually have Michael Jackson bones at one point. You want you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't the, bones. the bird is a, yeah, definitely a bird. I think it was actually. You know, that's what happened. I got a, a vulture. I remember it was a fake vulture, and I put it in front of my mic. There's a couple of photos of it on stage. I think. But uh, wait a second, Vic. Can you put a picture of that up right now? Because I did. Was it was it Brib that put up the the uh, picture of the vulture? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like an evil rabbit. <laughs> I thought that's how that is. <laughs> but but I did have vulture and until I wanted to get a real vulture 
until I found out that they, they pee on themselves and they, they're really not sanitary. So I was like, and owls as well. They're kind of gross. Um, so I was like, I don't really want a, a bird peeing on itself on my shoulder. I mean, that would just be not a I digress. We've really gotten off track with this because the last time you see what happens, it's a trigger where when you say bedazzled coffin, then we go right off the end. You're hearing a lot of exclusive things here, folks, but thank you for listening. We have Orianthi on our exclusive uh, live stream of In the Trenches. I'm Ryan Roxy, your host. And uh, if you just hit that subscribe button down there, if you're watching on the old YouTube live, please do it. If you are driving in a car, listening to this on the old Apple podcast or Spotify, pull it over and uh, you got to see what we're doing because Ori's drinking coffee and um, I'm drinking, well, I'm almost done with my cocktail, but we are not even close to being done with this interview, if that's okay with you, Ori, because there's a lot of things to come. We've just yeah. gotten into the point where 2009, 2010, you have Believe Out, There's you're touring like mad, you've had a lot of highs, some, a lot of lows, but you're, you, yeah. but you're pushing on through. Alice Cooper comes to you. Was it Shep Gordon or was it Alice Cooper? Was it Bob Ezrin? Or was it the whole three-headed mantra that came to you all at once and said they want you in the band? How did it go? So what happened was um, I was playing uh, American Idol, the, f- the finale for American Idol, and Alice Cooper was the guest. So he came out at the end. He played. He sang Schools Out with all the contestants, right? And, um, I'm shocked. Wait, wait. He would actually play schools out at an awards ceremony. I am shocked. <laughs> it was, uh, it, yeah, no, it was the finale of American Idol. So he came out with all the contestants, and yeah, he he, he sang schools out, and everyone was up there. And so I started um, the intro riff on the desk of Ryan Seacrest's desk, right? And I was dressed as a schoolgirl, like Angus Young kind of thing. Um, and so it was it was pretty funny, and and then uh, and that was really fun. And then afterwards, I got. Uh, to the trailer and then I was hanging out with Bob Ezra and, and Alice and I thought, oh, wow, they're, they're not, like, Alice is so nice and so cool and, and this is awesome. And then um, after that, um, Bob Ezra asked me to do some session work. Uh, I, I actually, guesting work, I guess, with uh, Fifi Dobson, which is an artist he was producing at the time. Okay. So I played in the song called Can't Breathe. So I played the solos on that, the guitar work. And then um, after that, I was making my record in Nashville would happen in this hell with um, that's with Dave, uh, Dave Stewart. Stewart another mentor who we're going to talk about in, in a little bit but but so so right yeah. around the same time that you're making your third album which had been sort of an EP as well right because it came out as an EP before fire right some yeah we did, we did an EP with fire first and um I was actually down there doing commercial for Hyundai uh, they wanted me to do all right now for a car commercial so I was down in Blackbird Studios doing that, and then I asked Dave, "Hey, let's just make a record." And he was like, "That'd be awesome." And so we made, ended up hiring all these great, amazing, um, you know, session musicians. How did he Nashville. find out about you? Did he find about you about Friendster or what? 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 What, what app did he find you from? <laughs> Dave, um, he actually well through this is it. He saw me on there, and and then uh, and then what happened was he invited me to play Stand Up to Cancer, which was um, this benefit thing, and and Stevie Wonder was there, and a bunch of Tina McBride and John McBride, who owns Blackbird, so we had dinner with him and hung out. And that was the first time I hung out with Dave and and everyone. It was just so fun. He seemed like such a cool person, and of course, being a big fan of the Eurythmics, you know, mm-hmm. um, he's an incredible songwriter and producer and all that. Is this all so, around the same time that you're getting in, sort of under getting into the relationship and sort of the the playing band of Alice? You're also making this album. EP Fire, which becomes Heaven in This Hell. It's all around the same time. 
or no? Yeah, no, that was 2010. I met Dave um, and did the Sound for Cancer. And then we just ended up writing and doing lots of various things. And I was guesting on his record and different, you know, stuff like that. And then, um, and then what happened was when we went to Nashville and I, and I was making Heaven in the Cell, that's when I got a call from Alice going, oh, uh, hey, Ori, like, um, would you join, would you be my, my lead guitar players? Um, would you be, you know, because one of my lead guitar players just, just left for Thin Lizzy. And, and so I was like, okay, um, yeah, that sounds amazing, absolutely. But that was, I was Damon Johnson that had just left. Damon Johnson, yeah, yeah. Damon. And, and, and so when, when Alice called me, I was just finishing up the last track with Dave Stewart in Nashville in the studio. And he goes, would you learn 25 songs in a week? And I'm going, because uh, I was about to go on, on the, to promote my new album, right? And then I was going, well, wait a second, like, I would love to be part of the, you know, Alice Cooper show. That looks insane and so amazing. So I thought, well, 25 songs a week, okay, that's doable, not knowing how many parts there were in those songs. Yeah, well, nobody, going, nobody knows how hard Alice Cooper songs hard. are until you actually listen to one, and then you realize how many of these great bands that he's put together over the years, how many great parts that these guitar players had. But, but Ori, be honest with me. When you first got the gig, did you... Did you know that it would be entire songs or did you think a lot more just, oh, I'll just come in and do the solo for that song? Oh, yeah. I just thought I was just playing the solo for that track. <laughs> I, I was like, I, it's funny. My manager put it to me that way too. He's like, oh, yeah. You know, because I asked, because, you know, Alice said, oh, you play, would you play lead guitar, you know, with, with the band? So I'm going, okay, well, lead guitar means like just come out for the solo and it's a pure maybe. I didn't know. We'll hang out in the background. And so I didn't know it was like the rhythm parts the lead parts, the orchestrated parts, dodging knives and Frankenstein. There was a whole situation going on. And I was like, okay, well, awesome. But I didn't know that. So it was like, wow, like, because um, that's how it was put to me. You're just playing lead solos. And then I got on the phone with Bob, I believe, Ezra. And he goes, no, you have to learn all the parts. Like, you have to <laughs> the rhythm. And I was like, how am I going to retain all of this in, in, in seven days? Yeah. 25. And so I'm like, I didn't speak to anybody. I got myself away. And then Damon ended up coming in for a day or two and helped me out with Halo of Flies because I was just like, of course. I quit because I was yeah. doing press and stuff at the same time doing it and my brain was just like halo of flies is like five or six songs in itself you know oh, so, so you have to add that onto the mix you know it's the coolest song though yeah, i yeah. honestly once once you learn it once i learned it and i was going this is so cool yeah, like you, it's, you, like, it's almost like you can't unlearn it you can't unsee it you can't unlearn <laughs> it once you've once you've done halo of flies folks and if, if it is kind of shocking that i know so much information about how the alice cooper band and the chronological order of members uh, exists is because just shortly after that uh I get to come back with you and uh, I joined up with you in 2012 and yep. we end up doing some really cool touring together because I remember when I first jumped into the band again, we the, yep. the first big tour was we were opening up for Iron Maiden, which was... Ah, that was so fun. That wow. was so fun. It was, that was so cool. And I remember meeting you at Tommy's place. Yes, yes. And over parts, yeah. Way, way out in the valley. And he had in the his, valley. his whole house was like a, it was like one of those houses out in the valley, but then you walk in and it looks like a studio because he had all just recording equipment and stuff. Oh, yeah, it was cool. And he had his artwork on the, on the walls and it was just fun and, and awesome. And 
I remember us going over the parts there and then the, the Maiden tour was so fun because it was like, it was wild actually with like, you know, the crowds looking out and how like, you know, it was like what, 20,000 people like most nights, right? Something like that. It, it could have been more because you know what? It was Maiden because it was all those yeah. outdoor sheds and yeah, it was one of those times where I just go, we are playing the tour of a lifetime right now you know it wasn't it didn't feel like an opening show it felt like sort of like iron maiden let us give us the prime spot and then and of course iron maiden would come on and they had so many diehard fans but yeah i mean it was that tour and then of course we got to go on an uh marilyn manson tour which was like a whole nother world for us both uh, that was so funny. I mean, I remember being so scared of Nance and like, uh, remember I used to run down the <laughs> corridor and, and cause my, my dressing room was parallel to, to his all the time. And so I would run into mine real quick before he came. And I remember a couple of times he would catch me. He used to love the fact that I was kind of a little scared by him. And, and on stage, he would say some really weird things. Oh, and then, you're, uh, you're this Greek Orthodox, you know, girl. From, <laughs> and, and he's... <laughs> Has a literally, folks. He had a black garbage bag lined dressing room every single night with with a member with the uh, air conditioner set to zero degrees. It was zero minus zero. It was, it was fucking. It was it was insane. And I was like going in there, and then I'll get a whiff of the cold breeze that would come through, and I'd be like. Oh my god! And I was like, Shut it down. <laughs> like, you know. And and it was, the there's time. not a light on in the dressing room. There's basically one little lamp, and then. But you know what? Uh, more about Manson a little bit later because the thing is, we are moving on, and and because as as you go through Alice Cooper, you end yeah. up going through a, a period of time where you made a really cool... Well, there it is. There's, I remember that night in particular. That was a Halloween night, folks. If you aren't watching, the, if you're just listening to this podcast, our, our grand producer, Vic, has put up a shot of us where on Halloween, everybody in the band dressed as Orianthe, including Alice Cooper. So that's your exclusive right there. And do you remember that show? I think it was somewhere up in Canada that we did it, right? It was so funny because it was funny. I, I guess I saw... Ch- Come out first or someone, and I didn't know what was going on. I thought because the wig was a little shorter than my hair. So I'm going, yeah, we we, we, could, we had to do what we had to do during that time. <laughs> I know, but I didn't I didn't get it at first, right? Until and I, I looked around. I was like, this is weird. Like, okay, I, I guess. All right, guys, whatever. This is a strange evening. But <laughs> and then then everyone came out, and I was like, oh, you guys are okay. And then I started laughing. It was I, I was cracking up. It was so funny. That's good. Yeah. From there, we we jam as we do many years. Uh, we go over to Maui and we jam, and you end up meeting uh, Richie Sambora over there, and you end up uh, again with sort of not, not mentorship; it's more of a collaborative. And you guys yeah, yeah. make a record called RSO, and that's produced yeah. by Bob Rock. So just get another accolade of a producer, and you know being surrounded by by really qualified you know musicians i would say um rso puts out uh, a record in uh what year was that that was oh gosh um well it took us about quite a few years to make about three or three three or four years to actually make the record but i uh, i had honestly i'm so proud of that record we uh we spent a long time on it and bob you know who we jam with um you know in maui 
yeah. quite a few times. Bob Rock Bob. is the actual, I, I wouldn't say he's the third guitar player because there's so many guitar players on that stage at that point at that jam. Yeah, I mean, he's like, he's one of the, one of many and I'm one, and I'm one of many, you're one of many, we're, we're all, there's just tons of great, you know, musicians on stage, but it's a it's yeah. a yearly thing that we do in Maui, and I don't even think Richie was supposed to be at that show. I don't even think he was supposed to be in Maui, to be honest with you. He just he, kind of showed what? up, and, and, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to jam, and then... Yeah. He, so he wasn't, and I had never met him before. I actually got an email from him or something a long time ago, because he had seen This Is It, and that was like ages ago, and, um, and Takumi was a friend of mine, and he was his guitar tech, so... But anyway, um, and and so he came up and he was like, "Hey, how are you?" And I was like, "Oh, it's really nice to meet you." And of course, being um, you know, I found out what he, you know, does, and he's amazing. Um, but yeah, and so after that, we, he just um, he texted me when I got back uh, to LA and was like, "Hey, you know, hang out and and write some and just jam." And I was like, "Absolutely, that'll be amazing." And you know that we, you know, actually we, we were in a relationship, you know, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, we like, all know because, damn it, yeah. <laughs> I remember you called me one day and you said, I, I can't do this tour. <laughs> we're, we're gonna, we're, yeah, and, yeah. and that was right when we were about ready to go off on the Motley Crue tour. And that's when you said, I, can't, I don't think I can do this tour. And then there was this mad scramble. And then and then Nita Strauss came onto the, onto the set and came onto the stage. And that's where our yeah, consistent band is. I love Nita. And, you know, the thing is, um, thank God that, you know, there was a replacement because I actually said to uh, Alison, like, if you can't find somebody, I will be there, you know. But, I actually um, spoke to Nita yesterday. She said, sends her love to you. And she says, that uh, it, you know, she says, have a great interview. You're good. And I said, she, she's, what did I say? I said, I might need to hire a translator, but you know what? I've understood every single word. I, I do. <laughs> Honestly, that's the thing. I mumble and I have an Australian accent. So. Uh, no, you don't mumble at all. You've been very well spoken this whole time. I want to check t- test on one thing because maybe, perhaps not pe- people don't realize what an important uh, part uh, in musical history Dave Stewart is from the Eurythmics. From the Eurythmics, yeah. he, you consider him part of your sort of your second family, right? In a way. Oh, English family for sure. I mean, I've known Dave now since since two thousand. 2009-10 so um but i would always go over every weekend and jam out with him and write a song or hang out with the family and anushka his wife and his kids are musical django stewart his son is a dear friend of mine um his you know daughters as well kaya and india and, and you know it's just like the whole family is so musical and creative and 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 his wife anushka is just awesome we just get along so well and it was always magical crazy times like uh you know he would invite me over to a studio over to his studio at the time uh, back in 2011, 12, and he was like, come over, Ari, and my mum was over one time, and he didn't say anything, he just come over and hang, I was like, sure, so my mum opens the door, Mick Jagger opens the door. What? Yeah, so Mick Jagger's there recording, All right. and, and I'm like going, and, and my, mom's like, <laughs> my mom's like, oh, hi, and I'm like, going, like, and I step in there, and, and, it, and she goes, she turns around, she's like, she looks at me like, Oh my God, I'm going, yeah, no, that's Dave. He doesn't say anything. He's, he's writing. But that sort of with- shit just happens to you sometimes too, like that. Oh yeah, Mick Jagger's at the door. Oh yeah, Bono and the Edge are rocking down the street, you know? It was crazy. And so, and we walked in the studio and I remember like Mick Jagger's offering my mom like um, some cookies or biscuits. He's like, would you like some cookies with some tea or anything? And my mom's like, oh my God, my mom tells that story to everybody. Oh, she loves and so it. We, we got, 
we went upstairs and he's recording with Day. They're writing a song for Super Heavy, that band that he put together with all the few different artists. And and Paul Allen's on the couch, Microsoft, you know, like he's yeah. sitting there. Right? And I'm going, oh, this is insane. And we're just sitting and hanging out and eating and having a martini. And, and it was just a wonderful, uh, it was always with Day, you never knew what was going to happen. And, and from, from even when he said, come to Nashville. And I was like, all right. So I went to Nashville, recorded with him. Next day, he calls, Ari, do you own a cat suit? And I'm like, I actually, I, I do own a cat suit, actually. A few of them. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I happen to um, have a leather cat suit. He goes, well, I want you to climb the, the walls of the Redberry Hotel in a, in a harness with your guitar on your back. And I'm like, sure. Because I wrote this, I performed this song called Girl in a Cat Suit. And so we shot the music video and he had these like strippers and a party and, and these, you know, and, and dogs and chains and, and craziness and glitter and everything. So um, I climbed the walls of the Red Berry the next day and, um, and, and yeah, it was can a we crazy. Find it on, can we find it somewhere it's on video? On, it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's called Girl in a Cat Suit. All right. Well, don't folks don't leave the uh, interview just yet because we are talking with Orianthi uh, from so many bands. Um, you know, there it is. One word. I love it when when I get to interview one word name people. And honestly, this is my, I think you're my first one word name people. I have not interviewed Seal. Um, unfortunately, I cannot interview Prince. Um, maybe Sting someday, but uh, I am interviewing Orianthi, and I love the fact that it's one name and that's it. But the one other question I think that everybody wants to know off that 2013 Heaven in This Hell album is what what song are you credited with foot stomps and why? <laughs> You're credited with foot stomps. Did you know? Did you, uh, again, did you even uh, know that? Fire. Fire. I think that song Fire uh, has foot stomps. Yeah, Light My Fire. That was not called Light My Fire. It's Creepers Fire. But, um, Did you demand the foot stomp credit or was that just to sort yeah, of to fill up the I story? demanded that. I demanded that. It was very important um, because they were really good. <laughs> you had the <laughs> no, best tone. The best tone. Um, yeah, no, it was kind of, um, I think it was for the Sunfire or Heaven and the Sour. We all stood on, I, I remember in the studio, Dave had all this um, wooden flooring. We just mic'd it up and yeah. I think we've really gone down deep into that subject. And if people that want to know for more about Ori's foot stomps credit on the <laughs> on the song, you guys. That's the best foot stomp, so if you want to hire me anytime, you know, <laughs> it's the best time. Just best another time. instrument you learn. So, which brings us all up to our main event. This is the whole thing. And usually Vic would put up a really cool overlay that would say, the main event. Vic, you have that for us? No? No? Okay. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the new record, folks. This is the artwork for the new album. It's an exclusive. Everybody take their screenshots right now so it'll piss off the record company is what we love to do. But anyway, Ori's already posted it, but take it down, Vic, before she gets in too much trouble. But we are, we are here to talk about the new solo album, which is coming out. You already uh, divulged it in November. Um, now, have, have you or not already released a single and then maybe taking it back with love bomb or will love bomb uh, 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 maybe maybe you had no, that was that was an experience um you know we all go through different experiences i was making a to be honest with you i'd rather forget about this situation but it's, it's totally fine that you've addressed it um so i, I do I my research because i do my research <laughs> 
all right. So some things, you know, um, you know, we do, we experiment. And I was experimenting. I got a call from uh, some uh, hip-hop producers and whatnot. And I decided that it would be an interesting idea to, uh, to collaborate with um, some people that work with P. Diddy and Rihanna and all that. So we did some beats and I did this song called Love Bomb and it was very uh, R&B, like the weekend meets, like I don't even know what. And it was different. And you know what? I was like going, hey, this could be cool. And I decided to go down that rabbit hole and then I went to Nashville and I actually met up with Marty Fredrickson, who's been a friend of mine since... God, I was like yeah. 20. Was and an amazing perfect. songwriter in his own right has, has co-written many of the Aerosmith hits in, in these last few years. A great songwriter, great performer. Yeah, you tell yeah. the story about how this, because what, what I got out of that song and what, when, when I was listening to it is I got all of what Orianthe is about. Blues rock guitar playing, heavy guitar playing, pop sensibilities and good songwriting and something even more modern. So you kind of squished all that together. Is that sort of what's happening with this new solo album or how would you describe this new solo album? Yeah, well, this solo album, it was funny because I was making this sort of, um, uh, as I said, a hip hop record at the time and kind of going down the pop lane and working with different producers with computers, right? And some of the songs are turning out really cool and everything, but I, I just wasn't like going, you know what, I kind of want to rock some stuff out with my band and I want to do this fast and go into it. I just wanted to feel like the real energy of, of real musicians. So um, when I met with Marty on that writing trip in Nashville, I, I was playing what I was doing and then we ended up writing something. And he goes, we wrote a song called Rescue Me, which is on the record. And after he wrote that, he goes, you know what, Ari, this is what you, this is, this is, it sounds like you. And I'm like, you know what, it really does. It kind of, this kind of feels right to me to do something like that. And um, he said, you should just make a record with this kind of stuff, and not with the computer thing, just do do a rock kind of bluesy edge record, experiment with sounds. And, and I was listening to a bit of St. Vincent, I was listening to, you know, just different stuff, you know, just different music and incorporating the killers, all that kind of stuff. And um, in excess, a lot of good YouTube. bands, yeah, and yeah, just all that kind of stuff. And and so um, I got home. Marty put the demo together. He sent it to me, and I was like, you know what? I want him to produce my record. So I sent him a text. I'm like, hey, Marty, would you produce my album? And, and he was with Aerosmith at the time in Vegas. I was doing their residency there, and he was like, sure, I would love to. And I was like, amazing. So I put him in contact with my manager, and we set times. I went out there. And we made the record in 28 days. So we wrote the entire record, and uh, I, I actually did some of the programming at home in my studio in L.A., and then I would bring the songs in with some of the programming and the beats and whatnot, and then we'd build off that. Again, from those early years of you learning all that technique, whether it was from your father, you know, way back recording from, from scratch, you, you've done yeah. a lot of production work yourself all throughout the years, correct? Yeah, I have a love for it because it's just like different, construct different beats and tones and all that kind of stuff and guitar sounds and, and all of that. So I'd bring in uh, pieces of it and, and Marty would put it through Pro Tools. I don't like using Pro Tools, I like using uh, GarageBand with Logic. It's, it's easier for me. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier. easier. Get the expensive plugins and, and the platform of, of GarageBand, it's kind of foolproof and, and it doesn't bug me. I can actually just get around just recording something without the whole headache of Pro Tools. Anyway. So I, I sent, you know, the stuff to Marty and I went to the studio and he would put it through Spice and we'd get, you know, his son, Evan, played drums on it. He's like 21 years old and right. plays like Mitch Mitchell and he's like killing it. Like, and, and I'll send you some tracks actually later yes. so yes. you can check them out. But 
Um, and he was just so great. And so we, the, the three of us made the entire record, wrote everything. Um, we wrote every song together aside from Crawling Out of the Dark, which I wrote with a, a country singer and artist called Candy Carpenter. And it was basically, that's kind of a dark country ballad, actually, which I made into... Okay. But yeah, and it was kind of her story and, and, and a bit of my story, but just when you hear it, it's a pretty heavy song. But I kind of wanted to do something different like that. And then another song I wrote with Nikki Six from uh, Motley Crue, which was crazy. He sent me through some lyrics um, and, and some an email because we met up um, that night you guys were playing the Hollywood Bowl. Right. right. Do you have a title for that? Is that is that? Yeah, the song's called "Streams of Consciousness," and 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 Nikki was uh, he called me up and he's like, I have this song, um, some song ideas and everything, and and uh, you know, sent me some lyrics, and I'm like, wow, these lyrics are insane. And so uh, I took them in to the studio where the Armani constructed the. Was it the night? It, yeah. it might not have been Hollywood Bowl. Was it the Greek? It was wasn't it the Greek? Because I know that you came up and jammed with us at the Greek theater. Or maybe uh, when then, or was oh. it, or, or was it when was, when we did with it was Motley? A Greek okay, it was a Greek theater. It was, yes, it was. Sorry, and and then uh, so I got up there and jammed, but they were backstage. Um, so yep. Nicky and his wife were backstage. And I was hanging out with them and I was chatting with them, and they just really loved that. People. Folks, is the definition of networking. That was really well done, well played. But you, I know you that you don't mean to do it on, on purpose. You don't you don't do it consciously. You just kind of are in the same vicinity and then people gravitate towards it and if there's the opportunity is there because Nikki Six is a great lyricist why not well yeah we just stayed in contact I guess just you know um, uh, yeah yeah, we're just like texting um, Nikki and his wife and I'll just be sending them like you know happy Easter or different messages like that and then all of a sudden I was like hey I'm making a record and it was actually going to be a collaboration record at first um, that I was right. going to do so I was reaching out to different people going, hey, do you want to write? Do you want to collaborate? Whatever. And um, and then, you know, Nikki actually wrote back to me and sent me these amazing lyrics. So we rewrote the song and I'm really excited for people to hear. It's called Streams of Consciousness and it's heavy. It's cool. It's just, he's, he's such an amazing lyricist. So, um, and then, um, and also Lindsay Garrick too wrote, a, wrote some lyrics. Nice, man. Lindsay Garrick from Chuck Garrick's uh, wife from Bisto Blanco fame. For those of you, because the chat is well versed in, they're all things Bisto. I've had Calico on the show. I've had Chuck Garrick on the show. So yeah, everyone uh, knows Bisto Blanco well, and uh, not maybe not everyone knows that Lindsay Garrick uh, writes really great lyrics as well, and has written on a lot of the uh, Bisto albums as well. She she does, and it's funny because they live next door basically to marty in nashville so they would come over chuck and um lindsey um you know and and hang out as i was recording you know and so it was so fun and um and so they'll come in and hear what i was recording the demo forms or whatever and just putting everything down and so we wrote this song called moonwalker actually she had some lyrics for it and um i'm like that's a cool title and everything and then we just it's it's the last track on the record, but um, yeah, she's she's really talented. So we have a, we have a November release. Do you have an official title yet, or do you, the, for the album, or do you have a working title, or are you just leaving it as is for right now? It's it's actually called O. The name, the title is just O. Because I, I, most people call me that, so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to call the album some, album something simple, and then we have it's just my symbol O. And um, yeah, you know what? This this record's inspired. It's it's edgy. It's rock and roll. It's got. A, I'm using a lot of synths. It's kind of got. 
if I had to describe it, it's kind of like Hendrix meets Muse meets St. Vincent meets In Excess. I want to hear it. I do. It's a, it's a vibe. It really is. And I've got to, got to say, it's going to be so much fun to play live when we can, and I'm so missing doing that. But I'm playing, I am playing a show with my band on the 19th. That's coming up at the, at the whiskey, right? So yes, it's a yes. live stream show, and uh, yes. that starts pretty soon. So that's again another exclusive only on in the trenches. You heard it here, not first, but you heard it here at one point. <laughs> yeah, and and that's going to be so fun. And we're playing like three or four four new songs off the record Perfect. too. Um, yeah, so we're going to get rehearsal for that pretty soon. We're going to get to your social media and how people can uh, uh, bond with you and connect with you on MySpace in just a little bit. But uh, let's <laughs> let's talk about, uh, let's have a segment that we like to do called Let the People Speak because these people, everyone that's been in the chat, by the way, thank you so much. Um, they have been compiling, Vic, our producer, has been compiling great questions throughout the comments and uh, we'd like to go through a few of them if they will. So it's Let the People Speak and uh, wow, look, look at that graphic. It's really impressive. Thank you, Vic. <laughs> no music, nothing, no explosion, nothing. All right. At Chris Winvindry says, how does it feel to be an alumni of the great Alice Cooper? Oh, it was amazing. A real honor. A real honor to, to work with Alice and all of you guys. I mean, I had the best time. Only fun memories and, uh, you know, learn a lot, I must say. I learned a lot and, uh, I, you know, I'm truly grateful for it. And it is one of those things where if you are in the band once, you're kind of in the band for all time. I've, uh, I've had Kip Winger on just recently. I've had, you know, Dennis Dunaway on on the show. So, and there is this, uh, I can't say the word. It's hard for me to say. Vic always yells at me, camaraderie. No, I said it. <laughs> he just shook his camaraderie. My, my, Bianca, you know, she she speaks so well. She's gonna yell at me about that word too. So I've given up on the word camaraderie. You just know there's a togetherness when you're in the Alice Cooper alumni. So our next question is uh, from at Till Van Nils Guitar Sessions. What was your first guitar? It wasn't a PRS, was it? No, it was this um this old beaten up acoustic that. Um, had like nylon strings on it that my dad had in the corner. That's what I learned how to strum on. You know? Was it left-handed or was it right-handed? It was left-handed, yeah. There you go, because you actually learned how to play it. Oh, we're going to talk about that guitar in just a little bit. Hold on there, Vic. That's another exclusive I don't want to get to because we're still on Let the People Speak. Come on now. At Hannah Cope, 88, writes, uh, did you have any difficulties when first learning to play guitar and how did you deal with them? Because we do have a lot of up-and-coming musicians. And um, any difficulties? Well, obviously playing left oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, bar chords for, for me were, like, impossible at first. Like, bar chords, right? Trying nice. to hold it down. And then, and then vibrato, too. Vibrato took me forever. And I remember seeing B.B. King. And how, and I would sit there for hours until my fingers were bleeding and I got calluses trying to get vibrato. So those two things for me, bar chords and vibrato were really Do you play your power chords or your bar chords? Do you play it with your first finger and pinky or your first finger and third? What do you do? First finger and third. Yep. Okay. Cool. I, 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 I'm a wimp. I still go first, first pinky once in a while because it's just less... I'm lazy. Less work. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like I play more of like, you know, sort of the power, power chords now than I do the bar chords. But, you know, it's like learning how to do that, and especially on an like acoustic guitar and trying to figure all that stuff out and getting it clear. You know, that was, 
I remember that being the toughest thing for me. The vibrato is more of a time thing. I think a vibrato, you it's a rite of passage at one point. I remember Chuck Garrick, you know, bringing him up again, came up when, when the first time I was in Alice, when I, I left, I didn't play with him from 2006 to 2012. When I came back in 2012, Chuck goes, your vibrato's gotten better. That's because, because I've been through a lot, Chuck. <laughs> vibrato is like more about experience, right? Oh, it is, you know, and, and that's the whole thing. It's like, it changes over time. As, as you were saying, it's like, as a, as a player, I think we never stop kind of like, you know, learning evolving. and, and grabbing, evolving and, and changing and, and you, know, you don't want to keep on playing the same thing over and over because you bore yourself. I bore myself sometimes. I have to leave the guitar alone and go to the piano. Um, and I've been doing that a lot lately, actually, because um, writing for my next record already, I've already written like 10 songs for my next album. All right. And, um, well, let's, yeah, let's, so- let's stick on O because we want O to come out in November. <laughs> it yes, is great. Everyone's going to get O and then... There's going to be a lot more music coming uh, from me later, too. So, well, well, in the thank you, Kerry Conkle, very much for that. And um, one more question over here from the uh, Let the People Speak. It's at, from Ek Kanak, KKVD. Uh, may you share your experience working on the Indian movie Rockstar with a famed composer and sort of, um, I guess he would be uh, known as a maestro, uh, A.R. Rahman. Hey, Armand, yeah, he, he's incredible. I mean, his work um, I was familiar with from uh, Slumdog Millionaire. So he scored that entire movie. Wow. And, uh, yeah, he's an incredible composer and musician and everything. And, and I remember getting a call because he saw me in, you know, This Is It, and he asked. Um, he was this Is It is it like a really good call. That's a really good like, calling card, right? It, it was crazy how many different collaborations came um, out of, you know, from people seeing me on that uh, rehearsal footage. And uh, so he, he called and he, he said, uh, he, he said, would you come play guitar on, um, it's going to be like the anthem for India. It's, it's called Sadahak and um, one of the main songs on this big Bollywood production called Rockstar. So I came in, he played me the song and it was all these Indian scales and everything. I had to sort of sit and learn and go over and, and with this melodic part. And then he said, do what you want to do with, with it. But this is the guidelines of the track. And, and then the actor came in, he had to mine my guitar parts for the movie. So, oh, no, um, yeah, it was a whole thing, and it was really cool because he was like a heartthrob, right? This is like, was he one of the one of the heartthrobs of the movie, or was that? Yeah, I mean, he, he was a, he was a lead star. Yeah, the 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 guy that played, uh, gosh, um, the main character in in Rockstar and Ron Beer Kapoor was that his name? Or, or was it? I think it might have been. I, look, dude, I went when I do research. I do research. Yeah, we, man. you probably got it right because I honestly I feel bad that I don't know. Ron Beer, <laughs> and and then there, then the female lead was uh, Nargis Farki. Well, but you know what? Who knows? Hey, I, I I went over the top on that a little bit, but I do know that uh, again while they while you were recording those tracks with Ar uh, Raham Rahman, I I can't say that name. Ramon, while you were recording those tracks, the director's watching you, and was he actually watching the session go down through Skype? Or did that um, happen? Yes, yes. So we had one of the guys from the, uh, the film, the director, he was over Skype, and then we also had some other guys as well over Skype, and then AR Ramon was in the studio with me, and um, in in Hollywood, I think, Ocean Way, I think we were at, I'm too sure, but 
yeah, so we did it all there, and um, yeah, it was just a beautiful experience. I mean, I, I really love working with AR because he was just, you know, he's so incredibly talented, and um, you know, getting to work with people that are just, it was kind of out of my comfort zone completely because it was, you know, in yeah. modes and all that kind of stuff. So I was like thrown in to something that I had to learn. You're like, um, I know, I think I know a harmonic minor scale, so <laughs> that's about yeah. as close as I can get in there. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I hadn't used it a lot, and so I had to really sit with it for a while and then come up with different melodies that would really fit and make it sound like I wasn't just playing blues guitar or rock guitar over a song. It actually fitted what, what they wanted. And, and Enough, you know, but still have your own. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was a really wonderful experience. I nice. love to work with them again. Cool. Well, we have that, and I think honestly that movie was quite successful, India, and so it just kind of broadened your worldwide appeal, right? That song I think went number one in India, Sadahak. So the song I played on, I'm pretty sure they said it was an anthem in India. So, but there's not a lot of people there. there. It's not a it's not a huge population. Not very many. No. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on at Applejack sucks because that's my favorite. Uh, handle name uh do you play any other instruments aside from guitar well i think we, you've established that yeah guitar piano um, drums bass, uh yeah drums bass um keyboards um yeah that's kind of it for now don't I forget the most play. important one ori foot stomps Stop. yeah yeah Stop. foot stomps all right Just <laughs> Stop, very, important. very important um and so but i'd love to learn how to play saxophone i don't know why i'm just like like I was watching some stuff the other day, and I'm going, "Crap! I love to learn how to play saxophone." And yeah, so but that's probably something. Or you know, your saxophone would have something different. It would be like 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 a, a glittery saxophone. I want a I want a saxophone that's like you know. Glitter coming out of it every time. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, and and dry ice. Why not? Dry ice saxophone. That could be perfect for you. All right, let's move on to just a couple more, and then I'll get you uh, taking care of business, and then we'll, we will get out of here, folks. But you know what? We've been hanging out with Orianthi, um, the guitarist. Uh, and see, that's the thing. I never I, – I don't get to say it enough, folks. What a good voice. What a nice – what a – talented voice that you have or because we don't because it gets kind of overshadowed by your guitar playing a lot of times and i know that nobody likes to brag about their own voice but you have an amazing voice ori and and did that just come from the experience as well of, of playing and playing so many gigs upon gigs i appreciate you saying that um i don't like my voice but it's funny because i learned how to sing um when i was like six years old after you know watching Elvis and the Beatles, right? And I just was obsessed with the Beatles and Elvis. And I was like, I wrote my first song when I was like six years old. And I'd perform at school and show and tell was like a new song I've written, you know, every morning. And, and then when I joined a cover band, I ended up singing and everything like that. But I was really shy when I started singing again when I was in, in my, when I was a teenager. And then I just got used to it. And then, you know, singing for me, it's just like, I just want to continue to get better at it and and you know it, it's um i love writing lyrics i love i write a lot of like you know different like i guess what poems just like different things i jot down a lot in my in my books and whatnot and always my memos you know on your phone right and i'm just like writing down things and um i just love it i love i have, love the whole art of songwriting i love all of that and it's just a constant thing that i'm always working on and getting trying to get better at so 
all-around artist. I like it. Uh, we'll move on to a question from at MadCat99. Uh, what's it like being around Carlos Santana, and does he like to smoke weed? Also, can we be friends? So at MadCat. <laughs> is it obvious or is it not obvious? Or is he just like, is he just like a mellow, hippie guy? What Carlos is a mellow hippie guy. I haven't, you know, I haven't been around him smoking weed. I haven't. Um, but you know what? I think, I think, you know, as, as hippies, it's, you know what I mean? I'm sure he smoked a lot of weed back in the day, as everyone <laughs> did, you know, back in the 60s, 70s. But it's like, I haven't been around Carlos when he was smoking weed. No, we just hung out a lot and, and jammed a lot and had, he's a very deep, spiritual, enlightened person who I've learned a lot off of. Um, do I like to smoke weed? Yes, of course I do. Here in <laughs> well, then it's apparently you will be friends with uh, Mad Cat. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, um, as I say, it's like um, I, you know, I find sometimes, and a lot of people have different things about this, but it's kind of like with the weed thing, it's like CBD and all that. It has actually helped me a lot, you know, with Focus? my migraines. Okay. Uh, with my migraines and joint pangs, I'm a runner too. So CBD and um, uh, oils and stuff like that I use a lot. And occasionally, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any a problem with having you know, edibles here and there and whatnot, it's especially if you're in creative zone. But I never let it get in the way of my work. Like, that's why I think some people, you know what I mean? Like, and anything can be a drug, to be honest with you. Yeah, you look no at doubt. That way. Yeah, so it's just it's just balance. And, and, and this is why I say because I have a lot of young fans, a lot of uh, you know, kids and all that. And I was like, you know, anything from drinking, smoking, all that kind of stuff, it's all you know in moderation or or not at all or whatever works for you because everyone is so different but as long as you can be the best you can be at what you're doing your craft it doesn't get in the way of that i say go for it you know what i mean it's like yeah, i think yeah. that because you've had such strong role models that you're actually becoming one for a lot of people as well uh these days i'm not endorsing and i'm not endorsing smoking weed i'm not endorsing drinking any of that kind of stuff you. I'm like, you're endorsing <laughs> moderation you're endorsing self-control oh. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm a very healthy person. Like, and I've taken that on for the past like four or five years. It's just I run every day. I have a certain kind of health thing where I'm, you know, I think it's really important to be that way. You know, to you know, to keep up your energy levels and and to to live your life and just be. I'm I'm all about. You know, I'm a I'm a big cook too. I love cooking, so that's something I you know when I do eventually is a cooking show and nutritional kind of workout situation so yeah nicely done well i mean because moving on with these types of uh role models that you have we have a question from at the real mud because he wants to know what was it like working with steve vi and i think we touched on it a little bit but because we went from carlos to you know and then we talked earlier about so many of these mentors and sort of role models that you've been able to jam with even alice is sort of a a mentor for us no doubt i always tell him say say to people he's sort of the uh the big brother i never had but then dave stewart but steve vibe being such a big guitar influence what was it like working with him steve vibe incredible i mean he's um you know just such a technically brilliant guitar player but also um, you know, he can put that all aside and play the most beautiful melodies too, you know, and play a couple of notes. So he's one of those very versatile guitar players, you know, and then he can orchestrate everything. He can score entire things. Like he's, he's brilliant. I mean, truly. And, and hanging out with him, he's very much into, um, he's very spiritual. Uh, he's into meditation. He taught me some 
was just over in this place not too long ago with my, my sister, actually, and, and we're doing this golden light meditation with wow. Steve. And, uh, yeah, and that was wonderful. And, and, it's, and, you know, he's very much about being, you know, present in the moment, but also having time for yourself. And, and, and you know, I've just taken upon light meditation, um, you know, for the past, like, few years, and it's really helped me a lot. Transcendental meditation or what type? Because I I was getting into yeah, just different stuff like that, and, and especially the golden light meditation, um, white light meditation, different things of just like clearing. I put on sound ball healing, which helps a lot um, before I go to bed. It's different, you know, where it be clearing out your chakras, clearing, you know, mental uh, blockages, whatever it is. And I really do feel that um, some of those tones do because I wake up rejuvenated i wake up differently you know than when i fell asleep if i'm like stressed out i got time in my mind it just kind of clears you out and it's so important to do that i think to be centered you know there's so much crazy going on in the world right now too that that's I why feel we that- try to keep it kind of sea free zone in here we try not to talk about all the other bullshit that's going on outside we try i try to just yeah. keep about what what improves you how do you deal with your things and you've definitely you know, shared a lot with us. We thank you for that. Um, talking about tones, and this is something that perhaps uh, not a lot of people know about this because they they closely associate you with PRS and PRS guitars for so many years. But something that you haven't talked too much about lately is this amazing new Gibson acoustic signature model that you have. Is that called the Gibson O or is it the Orianthi model? I want it. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired. Part of half of me is jealous as fuck. The other half is inspired as fuck because I'm so happy that you have this guitar because it looks beautiful. I, I mean, how did this whole Gibson acoustic signature series come about? Uh, so, well, I was with Gibson a long time ago. I, I was with Gibson in 2009, 2010, and I was using their acoustics uh, for quite some time. Then I moved over to Martin, then I moved over to Taylor, then I moved to PRS, and then, yeah, so I've kind of, you know, changed acoustic brands um, for, for a bit now, and then Gibson had always, um, they've been approaching me for a while, actually, the past few years, and asked, hey, whenever you want to come over to Gibson, let us know. And I'm like, okay, um, sure, but... Um, I wasn't sure, and then, and then I ended up. I'm not too sure what happened exactly, but I think I was at NAMM and I played a couple of Gibson guitars, and I was like, "Wow, these are made like amazing, like so cool." And and I picked up a J200, and I'm like, "I love J200s, like they're my favorite because of you know Elvis." And, and, it's, and it's a nice big guitar, and it has that big tone to it, right? It's huge sounding, and and I always record like when I'm in the studio, I always record a lot of. JT-100s, but I always find the necks to be a little boat-like. You can't really, you don't really want to... Well, it's a boat guitar. <laughs> it's kind of, well, I know, you could actually probably like, sail with it. You could, you could definitely sail with it. But I was like going to myself, you know, what if, and, and I, they asked me, they said, hey, we're open, you know, we'd love to have you, you know, endorse our guitars, and, and if you would love to come up with a model, we're down, I'm going... Okay, um, so I, the crazy Australian, they followed me down the rabbit hole and I said, guys, how about we grab a J200 body and put a 345 neck on it? So it's an electric acoustic hybrid. We modify the pickup so it has more mid-range and it cuts through and you have gain, compression, everything with LR bags. So I worked with LR bags on the pickup and I made it really hot so you've got an extra boost on the pickup. So it was literally 
ready to go. If you're going to play an acoustic gig, because one of my, my most, my pet peeves is playing those acoustic shows, whether it be a corporate event or whatever it is with a fallback and an engineer who doesn't know what the hell he's doing, he's drinking or he's high. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything sounds like crap, just poop. And you can't even communicate because people are yelling. So I just wanted a guitar that would literally bypass that situation. So when you plug in, it's ready to go. It'd be sound man proof. Not soundproof, but sound sound man proof. (laughs) He could be on crack. The sound man could be on crack and you're going to sound good. So that was my... STP, sound technician proof. That could be the actual, you could just abbreviate it, you know? Yeah, and I was like, and I want a rock and roll acoustic and I want something that sounds huge, but the playability of it is it's really comfortable for as a lead guitar player, you can play leads on it, you know? And so they were like, Absolutely. So I walked into the Gibson showroom and they had the guitar actually from Star is Born there, the 345, right? Wow. And the neck was perfect. So I'm like, can you grab this neck and shove it on this guitar? Where, this now, where was this? Was this in Nashville or was this in Bozeman, Montana? Because I know that they make guitars both places. Yeah, so Nashville, the electric factory, and Bozeman, Montana is the acoustic factory. So I went to Montana for the uh, to actually go through everything and, and the colors and the wood and all that kind of stuff. And, but uh, initially, the uh, Gibson they put um, together get some custom shop, yeah, yeah, and the Gibson showrooms actually are here in, on Sunset in, oh, in nice. LA. Okay. So I went there, and that's when I picked the neck out of the three forty five because um, I had the actual guitar from the movie right there. So I picked it up, and that was it. Just felt right. I'm going. I went through the less pole necks. I went through the you know three thirty five necks. So I was like, this three forty five is a little. I don't know. It's like thin, but it's like it's still you know, fits your hand right. Because I don't like necks that are too thin, you know what I mean? Like, this was just perfect. Yeah. And so Especially for an acoustic guitar. So so you fit, it seems like you might have have you might have found the exact combination for a great live acoustic guitar. Yeah, so I just really wanted something that would obviously be incredible sounding acoustically, but also sound amazing plugged in. And as a lead guitar player, something that people just don't want to put down. And honestly, when they put it together for me, I wanted... Uh, crystals in it too because it's an energy thing so I, I was like could yeah. you, <laughs> there you and, go. and I said could you put citrine and amethyst in the pit guard um, so they, they Robbie uh, Robbie Johns who, who does um, you know a, a lot of the uh, acoustic guitar yeah, uh, Bozeman, yeah. designs yeah um, he, his wife um, is actually very much into crystals and is very spiritual so she sourced out the crystals and we found the citrine and amethyst and we put it in the pit guard designed the pickguard together. I wanted a lotus flower because, um, you know, I'm just into lotus flowers and my tattoo and everything. And I was like, oh, I want that, you know, down the neck. But in a, in a way where it's kind of understated, I don't want it to be like lotus flowers, like so it's too girly. Like I want it to be something that guys would like to. No, I, think, I think it's a very universal looking guitar. It just looks like a killer ass design. Uh, the only thing missing is vulture urine. You just had vulture urine. <laughs> That's, that's extra. That's, <laughs> is, that the, is that the uh, step up or something like that? Folks, if you just yeah. uh, came into the uh, podcast and you're thinking, why is Roxy saying vulture urine to Ori? It's a long story. You'll have to go back and listen. But we really appreciate you guys uh, being part of this podcast this entire time. I know we're going a little bit over time. I hope that's not too much of a problem for you guys. But you've been such troopers in the chat. Ori has been nothing short of amazing with uh, amazing stories. I I want to go back and listen to this, but I have one or one or two things just left to cover. 
I know that right now you're playing Orange Amplifiers. That's that is your yes. co- and yes. Orange Company of choice. Um, again, it has a little bit of Gibson history to it because Pat Foley, who used to work for Gibson uh, Custom Shop, now works with Orange. And uh, basically, is he your was he your in with Orange? He totally, he totally is. He's a good, he's a great friend of mine. Pat and I talk every other day, and he's awesome. And tell me so hello as well. Oh, absolutely. He was actually in the studio with me in Nashville when I made my record. So he came in and heard the tracks about being recorded and he was lugging different orange amps into the studio, Marty's studio. And, um, he was such a great guy, but I, I had not really played orange amplifiers that much. I'm not too sure it was a color. I'm not too sure why I just kind of avoided <laughs> you know, like them for orange. a while. Ori hates orange. That's our soundbite. That's our total set. Sa- All right, folks, start putting <laughs> it up. Color. <laughs> there was something about it. And I was like, and then I plugged into the rocker verb mark three and i remember because i was using i was using some other amps at the time and, and i was just getting a bit frustrated with the time it was just irritating me and i go through I, I that happens to me with amps sometimes so i plug one in one day and it irritates me i don't want to play it i want to play another one so <laughs> so no what happened was um yeah i was like okay well and that's when i got hey do you want to try out an orange i'm like absolutely and i just amazing and and uh i'm really excited about um the some future stuff that's coming up with orange too. So that's enough said with that because there's so many things that we can talk about, uh, you know, with the equipment, with the new album coming out in November, that's Orianthe O. But uh, one last sort of closing segment because Alice Cooper demands it. He says, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. You know that Alice likes to embellish stuff. Here in never let the truth get in the way of a good story, I like to dispel rumors. It's either fact or fiction in my book. So you can choose to answer the question or you can choose to say no comment so there's only two of them if that's okay no no worries ready to go okay so never let the truth get in the way of a good story um did you or did you not ever get into a hot tub with marilyn manson fully clothed (laughs) um no, he was not in the hot tub. No. Okay, he was not. <laughs> it's fiction. So, but you were in the hot tub, fully clothed. I was. I was in a hot. I was in a hot tub, fully clothed. Yes. Okay. That, that happened. Half truth. So. <laughs> now I will. I knew. I see. I had to get a smile off you on that one. So. Um, here we go. And I was dripping. I was dripping, and I remember <laughs> Alex. You guys were waiting because you had to find me. That's a long story. All I can say is, absent is not kids. Don't do it. Just don't no, do it. No, ab- See, Ori, moderation on everything, but absent it is a hard no. There is no moderation with absent. I found that out the hard way in Marilyn Manson's dress room as well. That is a fact. Yes. No, he gave me some, and that's why I, I had you know, a generous amount of it after a show and ended up fully clothed in a hot tub uh, with my long trench coat on, right, with the blood and my extensions, my hair extensions, which was a bird's nest. And then I literally was dripping and went to bed fully clothed in my bunk dripping. It was really Horrible. There you go. So they're half half fiction, half fact, but all Orianti. Here's one last of never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Have you ever jammed with Prince? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Prince and I were actually friends. Um, I met Prince in 2007 and he called me and we hung out quite a few times and 
got to jam with him. Um, I shouldn't say we weren't close friends, but, we'll, we'll, you know, he would call me. Enough for him to call you and say, come on, you know, let's jam. Yeah. yeah, and he would call me a couple of times a year until he passed. And he actually called me a month before he passed. Wow. Which was crazy. Is it the one and, uh, names? Is it is it the one names club that you guys are all in? Did like does Sting call you twice and, twice uh, a year? <laughs> you know, it was it was actually what Prince wanted to produce my first record. There you um, go. And that never happened because the label didn't want him to, and I was really upset. Um, and then we ended up just staying in contact, and he was going to come over and play table tennis, uh, ping pong with us. Uh, he's a great prince was an amazing ping pong player that's the that is the that's a fact as well yeah and i actually um we ended up jamming for like five or six hours one time with sheila e we wrote a song we started to write a song together i finished the song actually with robbie krieger so that's coming out in a prince documentary um pretty soon i'm i'm sure but uh yeah robbie and i finished yeah robbie and i finished the song together um at his studio and uh yeah it was it was pretty, pretty crazy. I mean, I just, yeah, that whole experience. You, and, and you hear was, so many stories about, you know, with the band when he's jamming. Was it at all intimidating or was it chill? Because if someone's going to invite you over to, to jam, I, I feel it's going to be chill. I feel he's going to be completely, you know, kind of like inviting. But there has to be a little bit of nervousness going on because you're, you know, you're jamming with Prince. Yeah, Prince called me the day after he played the Super Bowl. Um, I, it was just crazy. Great you know, performance at the insane. Super Bowl. I remember it. Oh, yeah. insane. And he said, will you, join me, will you meet me at the record plant at like, uh, I don't know what time it was, with Sheila E. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, that'd be amazing. I thought it was a joke when he called me. I didn't think it was really Prince. I thought it was my friend yeah. saying, hi, this is Prince. I don't know, how, <laughs> don't know how he got my number. Anyway, it was 2007. So I went there to the record plant and we jammed. Then we hung out. Um, we hung out at jazz club and then he you know he was telling me that record labels are evil and i and i just signed my deal so i was like oh my god what are you talking about <laughs> and and i was like and then i realized um you know right. the, you know the whole thing about not that they're completely evil but i mean the whole workings of what happens you know with that because i was just off a boat from australia so i'm like going hey i got a record deal that's like the holy grail you know to get signed you know for anybody and so and we're here going comes this guy the- that says the first thing he says to you, and he's obviously <laughs> Prince, and he's oh, like, yeah, yeah. record labels are evil. But I mean, so and much. Like, he was saying, not, yeah, he's saying they're not. You know, you should do it yourself, and it's better to do. It. And, and he was very much all about, you know, the way that he was doing his thing, which is incredible. And he's such an amazing artist. And we ended up jamming. I was nervous. I mean, he played bass. Sheila played um, drums. And then I played uh, guitar. So we just jammed for like four hours. Somebody somebody filmed it. Somebody actually uh, recorded it. And uh, he works at the record plant. And we're still trying to get the tapes. Um, Vic, do you have that footage it. right now? Can you put that footage up right now, Vic? I think, no? You don't have it. Okay. I thought maybe our producer might have been the one filming it. He's usually good at getting stuff. <laughs> I wish I had that big end. He was, he was awesome. Yeah. Wow. So, that, so you... All in all, you've been able to jam with some of the world's greatest, but you've always done it yourself as well. You've been on labels, and we talked about like, yeah, the pitfalls of being on major labels and, and playing that uh, music business game. But at the same time, this work ethic that we've established from the beginning that you have and doing it yourself, and when we oh, yeah. s- said you know this guerrilla marketing that you have, it seems to work for you in your career and you as an artist. 
Um, well, I always feel that like, even if you do have a team around you, if you have a record label, if you have all these things, it's very important to take it by the reins. Like you've got you to come out with your, you know, your ideas. You can't have an outfit put on you. You've got to make the decisions overall. You know what I mean? You've got to write the songs. Everything, it's like I, I, look at, I look at it as I'm doing it myself anyway. Even if I do have, um, you know, a team around me or whatever, I still feel like, it's all on my shoulders. It's all on my back. It's everything that I feel intuitively should happen. Um, and if I feel strongly about something, um, I'm not going to hold back because I feel when other people, and I've learned this from the past, when other people make decisions for you, it usually doesn't work out. And when you make decisions based upon the, your gut feeling and, and whether it be, you know, um, there's different things. I, I just feel that if you're passionate about it and, uh, that's the way it should go. Other people, you should take people's advice, of course, and I'm always about that. Um, but this this industry is ever changing, and I just feel that everyone has their own individual individuality and, and, and their voice and, and different things. And and uh, you know, I think I think it's really important to do your own thing and surround yourself with supporters and people that can guide you in the right you know direction. Of course, in a business sense, but overall. Don't let people tell you what to do. I don't like it. I don't think anyone does. I don't think any of us as musicians like to be told what to do. Uh, that that makes me do the opposite in, in spite. <laughs> so, you know, well, most I, of the time. I can't think of a better way of wrapping up than amazing advice uh, like that. For, for not just up-and-coming musicians, but for established musicians as well. Um, I've been nothing but inspired doing, I said, doing the research on this in, entire interview, but also being able to hang out with you. I know we've gone way over time, um, but thank you for, for letting us have this time with you, Ori. Um, hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. And it's, and it's awesome to catch up with you too. It's been forever. And um, always love jamming out with you. You know, we had some great times on that tour. You know, you're... At, at one point, we're going to have thank you, thank you so much. And, yeah. and at one point, we're going to have to have you come back after the album is um, already out there, and uh, the album O, which comes out in November. And I just wanted again, let's uh, if you could say your social media for those of uh, the people that are listening to it on the Apple Podcast or the Spotify Podcast, if you could just say uh, the name of your social media, which is your social media of choice. I, I imagine it's uh, Instagram, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, for my weird postings, visit I am Arianthi, and that's you know where I'm also on Facebook as well and, and Twitter. I don't really tweet that often. It's weird. I'm just not really into that as much. And when I do, it's very random. Um, but Facebook and and I and yeah, I am Arianthi on Instagram um, are the main kind of. And if we really Facebook. wanted to dig, could we find your MySpace? If we really want, I'm sure. I don't even know how to log into that thing. I, <laughs> I don't know if it's it. my, my MySpace might be still there. I don't even know if it, if it exists. There it is. <laughs> yes, bring back MySpace. You know, bring back what, MySpace what? in the dark web. Um, so. <laughs> The dark web, yes. <laughs> That's where you can find MySpace. It's on the dark web. That's what exactly. it is. Exactly. <laughs> well, Oriathi, it's been a pleasure having you on in the trenches. Hey, everybody, thanks for being part of it. And um, again, if you haven't uh, checked out more episodes, just hit that subscribe button. And Oriathi, we will be seeing you live at the Whiskey A Go Go, which is happening one more time. Is that October? Uh, no, it's September, September the 19th. Whiskey, there. you can buy your tickets now. September and 19th. worldwide. Yeah, worldwide. So it's we're gonna be playing I'm playing with my band. It's gonna be so much fun and um 
playing some new songs off the new record O. So you can get merch packages now too and all that kind of good stuff. It's at Veeps, I believe, or go into the Whiskey uh, website and you can right. order from there. And, and of course, just go to at I am Orianthe on, uh, on Instagram to check everything else out. And the album O yep. is coming out one more time with that exclusive artwork that we uh, nailed here first at In the Trenches. <laughs> Yeah, see, yeah, and then my actually my first single's coming out on the thirty first of this month too, called uh, Citizen. There you so go. The thirty first yeah. of this month, the new single. And and what is that single entitled? It's called Sinner's Hymn. It's a very kind of bluesy sort of. Uh, I don't know how I'd really describe it. Kind of Muse meets Hendrix kind of vibe. So Sinner's Hymn. Did, yeah, yeah. It's it's got a, a definite sort of a Hendrix Muse vibe to it. So yeah. All right. Well, I will be uh, looking forward to it, as will the rest of everybody in the trenches. Folks, thanks for hanging out with me. I'm Ryan Roxy. This is Orianthe. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Until next time, folks, enjoy the ride. Yes. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello.